stress, anxiety, and depression are skyrocketing among children and teens. And Cook Children's Healthcare System is on a mission to bring these topics into the light. I'm Winnie King. And I'm Dr. Kristen Perch. If you have kiddos in the room, now is the time to put on those headphones. Some of the topics we'll be discussing will not be suited for young ears. This is Raising Joy. Hi, and welcome back to Raising Joy. My name is Dr. Kristen Perch, and I'm joined by... Winnie King. Stop it. We have to do our um, adjectives. Oh. Effervescent. (laughs) Okay. Inspiring. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll we'll be... And you are the brains of the outfit, so... Evolving is your favorite word. And joyful. Yes. But I'm going to keep thinking, because I know that there are better adjectives out there. Okay, but those were... I'll, you like take them? A, I'll take all of those. I'm going to record them and send them to you in a text. Okay. That, that, and then I'm going to, my ringtone will be, <laughs> Winnie is. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Welcome to Raising Joy. We love it here. We do love it here. <laughs> um, and we talk about all things mental health related to kids and families. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my very favorite attending in the whole world um, was Dr. Bashford at UNC. And he was the first person to tell me that he thought we should not be child psychiatrists, but we should be family psychiatrists because kids don't get well in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. They need help from everybody. So um, today we're super excited to have Dr. Casey Call joining us from the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU. Dr. Uh, Dr. Call is the Associate Director of Education and a leading expert in the field of attachment research. Welcome to Raising Joy. Thank you for having me. I'm yeah, excited to be here. It's good to be here. Uh, good to have you here. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask about your background, but I also want to ask about attachment research. This is something I've not heard a lot about. In fact, I've not heard ever about attachment research. So there's a thing about attachment or the lack thereof. Right. So attachment theory started um, with Dr. John Bowlby a long time ago. He's known as the father of attachment. And basically the simple answer is it's, it's a bond between two people. So when we talk about attachment, we talk about how important early attachment is mm-hmm. because the outcomes for adulthood, adolescence, and growing up um, really are significant. Mm-hmm. So what particular, what about attachment are you interested in? So are we in? talking about the parent-child attachment or, or you know, adult-adult attachment? Is there a relationship attachment right. that we're looking at? Yes, it's dynamic. Dyad- it's dyadic. So you've got to have two people for it, an of attachment course. relationship, right? Yeah. So when we talk about attachment, we can talk about infant attachment, but it's really, it's a lifelong process. I mean, we, we need people right? Okay. As when we're first newborns and we need people, we've got to have somebody who's going to take care of our needs, uh, you know, or we'll die. So my son is a big herpetologist and he loves reptiles and lizards. Yikes. I love this. Oh, I know. We have a whole, we have a reptile room in our house. No, you do not. We do. I pretend like it doesn't exist. (laughs) No, you do not. We do. (gasps) Yes. My worst nightmare. Oh, mine too. Mine too. But what I always, I think about the, you know, the amphibians and the reptiles. And I think about when their babies are born, they're fully developed. They just, they can run <laughs> off and, and support themselves. Sometimes the parents will even eat them if they stick around. Yikes. Right. Yikes. Right. Can you imagine Yikes. just being like birthing Yikes. an 18 year old child and be yes. like, best of luck, kiddo. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when we talk about human babies, when we're born, we mm-hmm. need people, we sure. need somebody to sure. take care of us. We have to have that warm, nurturing caregiver that can not only give us 
you know, there's a big difference between kind of instrumental care and nurturing care. Right. And so we need somebody who can not only feed us and change us mm-hmm. and, you know, and that but we also need somebody to play with us when we're bored and mm-hmm. take care of us when we're sick mm-hmm. and pat our backs when we, you know, are upset or, or uncomfortable. Right. Right. So, so whenever um, I had my first child, um, dad, I love you, but he <laughs> scolded me that I, um, as a child psychiatrist, that I was spoiling my baby. Okay. <laughs> we hear that. You're picking, you're picking that baby up too much. They're not going to learn yeah. how to self soothe. They're manipulating you. Yeah. Kristen, you're spoiling your baby. And um, so I had to go have a discussion with my child psychiatrist, um, you know, supervisor, which she assured me that you can't spoil a baby. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what an attachment theory researcher would say to something like that. Like, can you actually spoil a newborn? No. Okay. That, the short answer is no. no. Okay. When I when I think about attachment, the way that I teach it in class is I teach it as a cycle. And so if a, when a baby has a need, they express it and that causes distress. And so you've got all these kind of things going on. And then you have somebody who, you know, so you've got the distress cycle and then you've got somebody who will come and meet that need, you know, an mm-hmm. auntie, a grandma, a mm-hmm. mom, a dad, a, you know, somebody who's going to come meet that need. And then you, the, the child feels comfort. So you're going through this this cycle of distress and comfort over and over and over again. And the baby learns so many things. I always think about like um, one of the first developmental classes I took. And, you know, you go through Erickson's psychosocial stages and zero to one is trust versus mistrust. Yes. And I memorized them, but I had no concept of what they actually meant. Mm-hmm. But you aced that test. Oh, 100%. Okay, yes. Did. Yes, you did. I'm, <laughs> good. I'm We're good, good at memorizing. <laughs> um, but I think, but now when I learned about attachment theory, it made me realize, okay, now I understand what that means. That means that when I'm distressed and I have a need, I trust that somebody is going to come take care of it, mm-hmm. you know? And when mm-hmm. that cycle happens over and over again, that develops our, it's, it's a, it's a, it develops the way that we see people. It okay. develops the way that we feel about ourselves. Yeah. So it really develops um, self-worth. So mm-hmm. like I am worthy. Somebody's going to come take care of me. When I cry, you come, mm-hmm. you know, I'm um, always think it's hilarious. Like, you know, you finally get your baby sleeping all through the night and then all of a sudden they wake up and you go in their room and they're like standing at their crib and like, <laughs> Hey, yeah, how's it going? <laughs> What's going on? You know? And it's just like, okay, I'm just, testing it out, making sure that, you know, showing you my new skill that I've got here. Are you still going to come when I cry? You know, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. they're testing it out and it also teaches them self-efficacy. Like they have a voice, you know, when I cry, you come. Mm -hmm. And when I am upset, you're going to comfort me. And so that, that first year of life really is you're, you're doing that attachment cycle. I mean, I always ask new parents, like how many times do you think your baby has a need in 24 hours? You know, mm. <laughs> like thousands and thousands I of know, times like, over the first year, the yeah. number does, the limit does not exist. No, yeah. like, no. it doesn't, yeah. it no. just doesn't exist. So that that's really, they're learning be, because infants need somebody, because we need somebody to take care of us because they have needs that they can't fulfill on their own, you get this comfort and distress cycle over and over again. And so when you say, can you spoil a baby? No, because you're teaching them, I can trust other people to help me meet Mm. my needs. Mm. When I'm stressed out, these are the, these are the relationship dynamics that they're going to, they're going to have throughout Mm -hmm. their life. They're going to need it. Yeah. So if you have a baby who doesn't have that, they learn to use other ways to get their needs met. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, cause I've heard, um, you know, people who have adopted 
children from other countries. And I'm, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but sometimes you've adopted a child and you don't really understand the background. And sometimes that child does not attach to you, even though I'm doing it or doing what I've you know, what I believe is right for the child. There's something that doesn't click or doesn't connect. Am I wrong? No. Okay. That's where, so I'm at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU, and that's where our research and our intervention started, was working with families who had adopted internationally. Mm. And they were having... See um, how smart I am. See, boom, <laughs> she knew it. You knew I it. I told you. You knew it. I told her. Ooh. Yeah. She doesn't listen to me. She is brilliant. <laughs> she thinks I'm the brains, but it is wrong. No. She is absolutely wrong. But go ahead. I'm sorry. They, but they were having issues with like behavioral issues with yeah. their kids. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand where they were coming from and they didn't really know where to turn for help. And so what some of the things, some of the interventions now are teaching parents how to read the cues and the miscues of, of babies who have come home or older children who have come home. It's really easy to know when a baby needs something. Mm-hmm. It's harder to know when a 10 year old needs something or a four year old mm-hmm. or a seven year old. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes these kids have not had people to rely on. So they're, they're pushing people away because that's what they've learned, right? Mm-hmm. That's their survival strategy. And so when a, say a, a, an adoptive parent is trying to provide comfort or nurture or care, the child is pushing them away screaming, crying, urinating on themselves, throwing up, hiding, doing all these things. And the parents like, oh, they must hate me. Oh, I must mm-hmm. not be doing the right thing. Right. So a lot of intervention is teaching the parent like that's a miscue. They just haven't learned how to ask for what they need. They don't have they haven't developed their voice. Wow. You know, they haven't developed trust in mm-hmm. people wow. and that that kind of relationship skill. So, no, you're right on. That is. Yes. One hundred percent. Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. And, and and it's that is not a one-time intervention, right? Like it it takes a very – I mean, you think about how long the kiddo's needs were neglected, right? And so that – like from the very beginning, this kiddo did not have their very most basic needs met. And then I, I think it's kind of overwhelming to have someone that's like, I love you unconditionally and I want to give you a hug and I want to be there and support you. And they've never had that before. It's incredibly overwhelming incredibly overwhelming and it's it you know you can think you you can make progress mm-hmm. it's like that two steps forward one step back yeah. like oh they'll let me rock them now or mm-hmm. they come to me when they need hurt but then they'll be you know because of the trauma they've experienced there'll be a trigger which maybe it's a scent mm. maybe it's the time of a year the time of year mm-hmm. maybe it's a snowstorm you know you never know when that's going to be re-triggered again and they're going to kind of go back into that that trauma response. Wow. And a lot of times, like if, if the trauma happened before the kids were verbal, so before they were able to speak, they don't have, like you form memories after you're able to talk and after you're able to speak. Mm-hmm. And so they, if something traumatic happened to them before they were able to speak, it may just trigger a trauma response in them and they don't know why. And they can't tell you why. And we can all guess but a lot of times you don't know. Wow. And it's it's really overwhelming for parents because, and, and I understand where they're coming from. Um, and I also understand where the kiddo's coming from too. It's just really hard. I think because sometimes there's this mismatch of a parent who desperately wants to like love and care for a kid and a kid who's totally overwhelmed by that sometimes. Mm. It is heartbreaking. And I always, whenever we're working with families who have adopted and they're just, they, they, they literally have used every tool they know how to use. Mm-hmm. You know, they've gotten every help they can and they're at the end of their rope and they're they're desperately want to connect and parent and nurture. And so that is the 
oh, it's so heartbreaking. And I think one of the biggest gifts we can give those parents is to kind of build compassion for for their story and mm-hmm. where they're coming from and that they're not alone. And then mm-hmm. give them some insight. I mean, really what we've done through our intervention and through our um, Hope Connection Camp is really try to build compassion through giving them insight into trauma. What does that look like? What does it look like for your child and help them get them in a community of other parents who are experiencing it okay. too? Because I'm sure it has to be very isolating. And yes. it has like, because a lot of times what happens for kids, um, if they have problematic behavior, then the parents don't feel comfortable taking them to other plate, like to like a park it, or something mm-hmm. like that, because they don't know what's going to happen when they get there. Is a the kid going to run off? Are they mm-hmm. going to say something inappropriate? And so like their circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And sometimes it may be like one other family who also adopted that they feel comfortable with. So yes, I agree. I think that having that support and like normalization that, you know, like you are doing your best. Yeah. I remember one mom, um, she had adopted her daughter from Russia mm-hmm. and her and her husband had been on this multiple year long journey to adopt her. And, you know, the whole time they're filling out their paperwork, they're, you know, going through all of the interviews and the home studies and their goal is like, we want this baby so bad. We're going to provide a good home. We're going to mm-hmm. love them. Mm-hmm. And then they get her home and they don't, they don't, now they have to reach out for help after they've already convinced everybody that they're going to be great parents and that they know what to do. And now they have to reach out for help. I remember her just saying like, it crushed me. I couldn't go back to those people. And now it's much more common. This was um, probably 12 or 13 years ago. It's much more common to have more post-adoption services in place. But back then it was like, I've just convinced them that I'm going to be a great parent and now I have to go ask for help. Wow. That's scary. Yeah, you mentioned um, Hope Connection Camp. So what is that? Like, what what is Hope Connection Camp? What's that all about? So Dr. Karen Purvis um, and Dr. David Cross, um, like I was telling, talking about the um, families who had adopted internationally who were kind of searching for some, for some help. And they came to the psychology department at TCU just saying, hey, do you know anything, any resources we can have? And Karen at that time was a graduate student. And so she decided to just host a camp not a therapeutic camp, just a fun camp Mm -hmm. for the kids to give the parents some respite and to give them a break. And because of her history, she was a non-traditional college student. So she was older and had a lot of experience working with children in foster care and children who were, um, you know, who had had led really tough lives. Mm -hmm. And so the atmosphere that she created at the Hope Connection Camp um, was... She didn't know why, but the parents and the and the people at the camp started seeing really awesome results. Like the babies would let the, or the, you know, the nine-year-olds would let their parents finally rock them. They mm-hmm. were giving hugs. They were being mm-hmm. affectionate. I know. I know. And they would, they saw like two year, two years of language growth in a three-week camp, which is impossible, right? But the kids were finally starting to feel safe. She'd created an environment of real safety and connection Mm. and they were starting to feel safe. So they were able to like get out from their, you know, their kind of trauma brain into their prefrontal cortex. They were able to have use those higher level thinking skills, you know, so they didn't gain two years of language growth, but they were able to access it finally. Mm -hmm. So, and that camp, um, really started to help families who had adopted. And then out of that came an intervention and we've continued with the camp. That's so cool. I think I, I just, the three words I thought about was safety, connection, and then I also thought about with camp, it makes total sense because the kids are having fun. 
That's yes. how they work through play. So much is play. Mm-hmm. Like so much. And so when they take away PE, I get all incensed. Same. But, and fun arts. Yes. Right? I mean, and, and so they really need that. So I could definitely see how it would be a great way to like work through a lot of things and to feel safe and connected and, and those sorts of things. So you mentioned there was an intervention that came out of that research and um, it's TBRI. Um, and the the reason why I bring that up is because that is sort of the theoretical framework and how we approach taking care of kids on our inpatient unit because we have so many kids that have a traumatic, you know, a traumatic upbringing. I think like 90 percent, 80 to 90 percent um, of our kiddos have had some sort of significant trauma, one, if not two or three. And so having that sort of framework and, um, you know, like just, this is how we approach kids is really helpful. So do you work with, um, TBRI techniques and what exactly is that? Oh yeah. So I've been at TCU since 2007 and I got the, um, really amazing experience of being able to work with Dr. Karen Purvis. And I got to do home studies with her and do many camps with her. And she was my mentor for many years. Um, and so I'm still at TCU and I'm our education. i run all of our educational programs and, um, train on TBRI, um, and, you know, really am trying to raise up the next generation who's going out in the world to work with kids and families Mm -hmm. to be able to start from a trauma informed approach. What is TBRI? Trust-based relational intervention. Okay. And it's based on, um, when you think about, I mean, it came, ours came out of the camp and then now, you know, kind of trauma-informed care, such like buzzwords. Um, and so it's, it's making sure that there's, that children feel safe, that they know how to have healthy relationships and that they have healthy coping strategies. Yeah. Is this mainly for um, families that have adopted or do you see this or have you seen this in children that have been birthed? Oh yeah. It, you know, we started working with families who had adopted, but it's just good child development principles. When you're talking about being able to make eye contact and use a nice tone of voice and being respectful and playful and connecting and meeting needs, and it's just good child development strategies. Mm. Wow. So what happens maybe if a kiddo's develop, if their attachment needs aren't met, aren't met? So let's say they're like in the crib. And I think a lot of times this happens um, like maybe a, pay, a mom has like postpartum depression, right? Mm. And so she can't mm. get out of bed and, she, you know, like she's just overwhelmed and can't do it. And so what, what kind of things happen with a kiddo if, if their needs aren't met? I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I always, when I'm teaching about attachment, I always try to build compassion for the caregivers yeah. mm-hmm. because they are doing the best they can with the tools that they've been given. Yeah. Yes. And when you think about attachment, it is very very intergenerationally transmitted. So there's, there was a study that is like our attachment styles, about 85% of us are going to be the same attachment, have the same attachment style that our grandmothers did. Shut up. I believed you on the mom. I was like, I knew, I knew I was like, yes, no, I parent my children just like Gigi does. (laughs) But no. Okay. Yeah. Grandmother. That's so cool. Yes. Without intervention. It's cool. If you so I didn't know my maternal grandmother. Yeah. And wow. so, and so I'm like, and they've always said like, Hey, you kind of remind me of her. Oh, 
Because like she would anyway. Yeah. yeah. So I like that's to me that's cool. That's yeah, why it gives cool you for a me. connection with her. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I always, yeah. So I'm really glad you brought that up about the caregivers because we parent with the tools that we're given. You know, Dr. Purvis used to always say, you do the best you can with the tools that you have. Yeah. And when you know better, you do better. Yeah. You know, that's, that wasn't Dr. Karen Purvis. That was Dr. Maya Angelou. So let me make that distinction on those quotes there. Um, but so I always try to build compassion for the parents because mm-hmm. You know, I have never met a parent who said, no, I don't want to do the best I can with my kid. You know, I mean, <laughs> they wouldn't like, be there. They, they wouldn't be, be in there. therapy. No, okay. they, they wouldn't be coming to you for help. I'm if a they snake. Were... Let them go. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to eat them. <laughs> I'm a snake. Just let them go. <laughs> That's right. So, yes, if you have a if you have a caregiver who can't meet those needs, mm-hmm. um, you know, who oftentimes we'll see parents, especially like in affluent communities, Mm -hmm. parents who give lots of instrumental care. They're the homeroom moms. They're the, you know, ones bringing the snacks for the soccer games, Mm -hmm. making sure the homework gets Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. They've got their school uniforms. They've got all of this, but it's that emotional presence that's missing. And you've got to have the combination of the emotional presence and that instrumental care. Mm -hmm. And so if they don't have it, if you, if, a parent has postpartum depression, if a parent has a substance use disorder, if they're, you know, have something where they can't be emotionally present, then what you'll see is the child develops, you know, survival strategies because they're not going to make it on their own. Mm. And so they'll do things. Have you ever seen the still face paradigm where they have, um, so they'll, they'll, uh, Dr. Ed Tronic did this and uh, there's a baby and the mom is really engaged and making eye contact and mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, smiling mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of this. And the baby is just engaged mm-hmm, and laughing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the mom will do a still face for about two minutes. And you should see this baby. I don't remember how old the baby is in the videos that I've seen, but just a few months old. And the baby will try every strategy they to know engage. to get their attention. They will point they will smile. Mm-hmm. They will make noises. They will start, um, you know, like moving, shaking mm-hmm. their bodies. Mm-hmm. At one mm-hmm. point, the baby starts drooling. And you can see how dysregulated they are just for those two minutes of not getting attention, right? Wow. So does that mean we have to give babies attention 100% of the time? No. Okay. Right? Because <laughs> what we're doing is we're teaching them how to to use how to develop those coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Right. And then mm-hmm. the, the parent will return to being very responsive and the baby goes right back. Yeah. It's that rupture yeah. repair. Yeah. And that's how yeah. we learn. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But if the baby is like that all the time, they're, they're developing these self, you know, coping strategies mm-hmm. on how to get attention. How am I going to get my needs met? These mm-hmm. are survival skills. Mm-hmm. And they use, instead of using their words, their voice, their bodies, they learn how to use their behaviors to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, you know, a hundred thousand years ago when I was a young mother, <laughs> it was a long time, 102 years. Uh, and I remember, um, the, one of the hardest things it was for me was to put my son down at night. So I wanted him to sleep and sleep in his own crib. You know, you go in there, you put him in the crib, you turn off the light, you assure him, you know, all of that. And then you walk out and then he starts screaming like bloody murder, (laughs) you know, and you and 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 the guilt and the trauma that it caused me because I was married at the time and he kept saying, no, don't go in there. Let him let him cry Cry out. Yeah. Yeah, let him cry it out. And so I would wait maybe five minutes or so, but go back in there and then, you know, I, it would. But that was so horrifying for me because I did not want him to think that I wasn't going to meet his need. 
Right. And, you know, you're trying to decide, do I do this and let him cope or do I do this and let him know I'm going to I'm going to meet the need? But I don't I don't want to meet the meet the need at night. I need to go to bed. You know, I mean, <laughs> so that you can I, be the best mom in the yeah, morning. That's yeah, right. So I, but there was such a oh, man. But I think struggle. That, but I think but think about how important it is for us to have for, for moms or for parents to have that response. Mm. Like it's so powerful so that we meet these kids needs mm-hmm. so that they attach to us. And so that they come to us when they have problems and so that they can survive. Yeah. So I think it's like, like it's biology there, yeah. you know, like yeah. it's, it's engineered to yeah. make, you know, to get you there. But the mom guilt is real. It was, oh. it was, it was, it was horrifying. I, and I just hear those screams and, you know, at night it was terrible. And I, I really didn't like my ex-husband back then. <laughs> I really didn't like him right then. And, you know, but, but, and I, and, and, it, and it took about a week and he figured it out and he went to sleep and everything was fine. But during that time I was like, this is not working for me because I'm That's a first hard. time mom and I want to be the best. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want this kid screaming like that. And it was just, it was really difficult. So I was concerned about what, was going to happen, if he was going to feel comforted, if he was going to feel that I would meet it. It was terrible. It was, it was hard. And for anyone who let their baby cry it out, I'm a child psychiatrist and both of my children cried it out. And they got over it. And they, and they're okay. Yeah. I I just don't want anyone to feel like, oh gosh, like they're, you know, like it's judgment. It's a bad, like it's a bad thing to cry it out. People always ask me that. And I say it, you know, as a newborn, I would say, meet their need oh, on a 100%. consistent basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when they're a little bit older and they can, they have some of those strategies, then you can, you know, that five minutes, go back mm-hmm. in 10 minutes, mm-hmm. go back in 15 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, you're teaching them on that gradual basis. I'm so coming I think in, but I'm not taking you out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm the coming in. Yep. Yes. That's and right. Yes. I'm coming and, in, but I'm not taking you yes. out. And but I did the gradual. I wasn't just like, Good night, kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a luck. <laughs> I agree. We don't need any more mom guilt. Yes. I know. <laughs> yes. Talk to us about attachment style. What is that? Yeah. So, you know, the way it depends on how our caregivers responded to us. So we've got kind of in infant attachment, we have four different classifications. So if we have a caregiver who is warm and nurturing, can be emotionally present, meets our needs, not a hundred percent of the time, mm-hmm. but you know, most of the time, um, then we develop, like I was talking about earlier, you know, self-efficacy, self-worth, trust, all of those things. And we call that secure attachment. Yeah. And that, when you look at the research is about 60% of the population. So that's, That's good. That's Mm -hmm. good news. That's Mm -hmm. most of us. Mm -hmm. So for our type A high achieving moms, (laughs) yes, just know, Mm -hmm. like there's also the concept of like being a good enough mom and that exists and that is real and you are good enough. Okay. Like most of us have secure attachment. Okay. Sorry. Just want to give a disclaimer. And can I add one thing to that? Go for it. And the rupture and repair is where children learn. So perfect parenting, there's no such thing. No, because I would have written the book and be you know, be famous. And I I always teach about this all the time. And my kids will look at me and they'll be like, you're not using TBRI. I'm like, Oh, I can't wait wait until my kids actually know what I do. And it's going to be, it's hilarious. My dinner table will be brutal. It's my, my kids have (laughs) therapy funds. I mean, they're just, yeah. Last Mm -hmm. night I posted something on my Instagram feed that was from another psychologist, Lisa Demore. And she said, um, do you know how psychologists mess up their kids? They talk about feelings too much. Yes. And I was like, I'm so sorry, kids. 
Oh, that's just but that's what, what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. That's right. But the rupture and repair is where we learn and it's where we start to build resilience and it's where we start to build coping strategies and regulation. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's the really hopeful part because we don't have to be perfect, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then we've got caregivers who are able to be, um, really physically present, but not emotionally present. Yeah. And so they will meet physical needs and change and, and food and all mm-hmm. of that, but it's hard, harder for them to be emotionally present. And that's based on their upbringing and how they were parented. Mm-hmm. And we call that attachment um, style anxious avoidant attachment. And what it means is they're, they're avoidant of depending on others when they're stressed out. So there's also I feel like I'm kind of going all over the place, but no, there's I, like I'm following. Okay, I'm following. that's crazy, I, I, but I'm, I am following. I'm on, the, on. I'm on the rabbit trail. <laughs> okay, okay, come on, come on. <laughs> there's an intentional model of of attachment, and so to me, this makes a lot of sense. So if you have a secure attachment when you're when you're comforted and you're in a good place, mm-hmm. your attention is towards the environment, towards learning new things, towards people, social interactions. When you're distressed, your um, attention is really towards depending on other people to help you meet your needs, right? And then if you have this anxious avoidant attachment, your attention is really focused. When you feel distressed, it's on things to meet your needs instead of people to meet your needs. Mm. So this is like, and and I don't want, again, no parent guilt because blankies are great. Snuggly things are great. Mm-hmm. You know, pacifiers, all of those things are great because those are aids and and comfort. But if we do these relational strategies over and over again, and we don't depend on people to meet our needs, we start depending on things to meet our needs. Mm. So we have a a research protocol that we use to assess attachment. And what you'll see in babies who are um, anxious or who are anxious avoidant is that instead of crying during this laboratory experiment, when their when their parent leaves, they turn and like start playing with toys. So their attention is focused on their environment and kind of not on their internal feelings and what's going on. And another interesting thing, at least to me, because I'm a nerdy researcher, is that they check the cortisol of all of the different kinds of babies, and the babies with these this avoidant attachment had the highest levels of cortisol, even though like they looked cool, calm, and collective mm-hmm. on the outside. I know that just makes me like. And this is, this was my attachment style. Like, you know, this was my attachment style. So I'm not coming to you as like, you not know, knowing, right. Like, you get it. <laughs> okay. And it. I'm sitting here trying to figure it. I'm okay. like, what do I do? Do I turn to people to ask for help when I'm stressed? No. I never do. No, I never do. No. So, and <gasps> so then funny. I know. And then the other kind of, um, the third kind is anxious ambivalent. And so this is a caregiver who is present sometimes, not present sometimes. And so the baby doesn't know when they're going to get their needs met. So they Mm -hmm. try to keep their attention focused on their caregiver all the time Mm -hmm. because they're like, are you going to give me attention now? Mm -hmm. Are you going to give me attention now? Is is now a good time? (laughs) Right. So they might be really whiny all the time to try to keep that caregiver in connection. Right. So they, they really it's called ambivalent because it's this push and pull relationship. We had a, um, in one of our strain situation clips, we had a caregiver and a baby and it was like, we couldn't have scripted a better example of this, but the parent was told to leave the room and the child was there with some toys and she's going out of the room and she says, bye-bye, bye-bye. And then she stops at the door and goes, come here. And then leaves the room. So, right, it's this push and pull relationship. And oftentimes what we see is that the parent is really paying attention to what they need mm-hmm. emotionally as mm. opposed to picking up the cues on the baby. Mm. But that so. would be because they there's something that they need. Like yes. they're doing as best 
the best that they can. That's exactly right. And but so they need something. The parent mm-hmm. needs something. They need support. Yeah, they need support. Yeah. And the good news about anxious avoidant and anxious ambivalent is that they are organized strategies. So these kids, these babies, they learn how to deal with stress and discomfort. Is it the healthiest way? No, but it's not dysfunctional, right? It's not dysfunctional. So, but the one that it's, to me, when you look at children who've been maltreated, about 80 to 85% of them have a disorganized attachment. And that's where they don't have any strategies to deal with comfort or to deal with discomfort or Mm -hmm. stress. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's disorganized. And that's typically from they've had a caregiver who has been frightening or is or is completely absent, which is frightening to an infant or a baby. Right. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean they, they haven't always been abusive, but sometimes they've just been kind of vacant, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so that, those are the kids Mm -hmm. that tear at my heart. Those are the kids that is like, we've got to, you know, let's show them what these healthy relationships look like because it's not a, there's, there's hope, you know, we can help them. That's why I feel like I'm on a soapbox now. Go for it. Let's, let's hear it. That's, the podcast is a climb, soapbox. Yes. Climb high. That's why I feel like every person that is part of a child's life, a teacher, a counselor, a caseworker, a coach, a youth leader, a, mm. all of these people have the opportunity mm-hmm. to plant these little seeds of what do healthy relationships look like? Oh. How does it feel that I'm emotionally, you know, when I'm emotionally present? Mm-hmm. And that builds, we call them transform- transformational relationships, mm-hmm. and that builds security. And if you haven't had you know, a secure, you know, if you don't have secure attachment growing up, you can earn secure, Mm -hmm. you know, by having these healthy relationships over time. So I will say, you know, we, we talked a lot about, about how, um, kiddos with trauma sometimes come to our unit and things like that. And you can definitely see it on the unit. Like they, the kiddos, like whenever something small happens, like maybe they lost at a game of connect four and just totally just totally dysregulated, Mm -hmm. like not thinking with like a logical brain at all, like aggression, yelling, throwing things, hitting people, destroying the room. And so I think, I think a lot of times, you know, whether it be at school or at Mm -hmm. church or in the community, sometimes you can see kids having these big outbursts and things like that. And, you know, I think a lot of times people look at the parents sideways, like, what are you not doing? But I, you know, a lot of times behavior is a symptom of a much bigger problem. And so I think the more that we can give compassion to the kid and the more that we can give compassion to the parent, I think it'll go a long way in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've always told you I'm, I'm, you know, obsessed with TikTok, so I watch it a lot. Okay? <laughs> I'm not ashamed. <laughs> but there was um, a clip that I saw of a, a mother at a counter with a child that's probably about, mm, I would think, maybe five or six and the mother is getting something from the cashier and apparently the kid really wants it and she's not getting it. And this is a child that is, I mean, in the floor, screaming, kicking, just, I mean, losing every everything. And the mother is just like, okay, we've seen it before. Um, and just keeps walking. And as she keeps walking, the child is following still screen. It, it is disturbing. And you often, and I'm sitting here thinking, what, what is it that caused the child mm-hmm. to be so out of whack and how the mother is so calm? Yeah. How, how why? 
is mm-hmm. that? Because I, I would, as a mother, would be mortified. Get up! <laughs> you get up out of that floor. You're embarrassing me. You know, I would not have been probably. I would have been interacting. We would have had an interaction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, I would be engaging with that with that child. But the mother was just kind of walking. I, I guess it's the mother, but just, I mean, walking to the point where the kid lost a shoe. I mean, in the store, people are looking and clearly somebody caught it on camera, as they always do. But I often wondered mm-hmm. what was going on. What was that dynamic? Right. That was causing her to be just aloof. Or you could put a positive spin on it because what we see with uh, caregivers who are secure is that they're well-regulated. Okay. And so they have to be secure in your own attachment means you've kind of processed your history. Mm -hmm. You know what your triggers are. Mm -hmm. You know what can Mm -hmm. keep you mindful and present. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't seen the video, so (laughs) I might have a different take on it if I saw it, but but mm-hmm. I always think of attachments really a regulation theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and when I say that, I mean that um, figuring out, and, and when we talk about adult attachment, it's really to be secure as an adult. It's really figuring out processing your past and not having anger about it and mm-hmm. not having, um, yeah. and really uh, like having compassion yeah. towards what you were given, the, all the positive things, and also having compassion towards what you weren't given. And so being a really well, I used, I used to, this was my mindfulness mm-hmm. tip when I was a kid, when my kids would do that, mm-hmm. I would go to the side and I would put my head down and I'd be like, it is my job to help you regulate. It is my job to help you regulate. It is my job to help you regulate until mm-hmm. I believed it. I mean, I would mm-hmm. say it like 20 times mm-hmm. because I, I think about, um, I say this in my class all the time, relationships and regulation are the two things that we need to be to, in my opinion, we need to be most intentional about teaching kids. Mm-hmm. And if we can teach them how to have healthy relationships, mm-hmm. how to respond emotionally, and then also help them to develop these, what are the things that trigger you? What are the things that, you know, do you, yeah. you know, you have those kids that know all of your buttons and can and push them. Yep. The combination. The, yep, yeah, they right understand. Yep, yep. They do. And, and if that doesn't open, I know another one. That's so. right. <laughs> right. They've got a list of them yeah, that yeah, somebody printed yeah. off for them somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, one way to look at that, that parent is maybe she was just using mm-hmm. her mindfulness and mm-hmm. being really calm have. and, mm-hmm. you know, and as she was walking out the door, the kid is following her. Yeah. So well, <laughs> I was going to say, I definitely have let my kid throw a fit on the floor in public uh-huh. and I just walked by. Yes, <laughs> I did. Oh, grocery <laughs> store. Was it a grocery no, store? No, it was okay. in front of daycare and oh. I just kept going. And she, cause I know that, but this is me knowing my kid, right? Like, yes, I know that she's going to get anxious on the floor whenever I'm at the door a few feet away Mm -hmm. and I can see her. Like, I know she's not going to run out in the Mm -hmm. parking lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just acting like I'm not paying attention. Yeah. And sure enough, she got up and walked. Yeah. But you know, but my thoughts on that video are like, is like, is the kid, you know, I haven't seen it either. And so like, is the kid melting down because the mom is aloof and doesn't know how to get their needs met. And so they're melting down, down, you know, like in this giant, using their behavior to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so every behavior serves a purpose and maybe this one has met its needs before. So is, is it that, or is this mom like, 
I'm not paying attention yeah. to you. You yeah. can throw like, and, and that's what I tell my kids. I'm like, this is on you. Like that's your behavior. It's not, not me. Mine. I'm not, yeah. I'm not embarrassed by you. Mm-mm. Like that's you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just, I, I think what caught my attention most of it, and that wasn't because of the melt, the meltdown, of course, caught my attention, but because of the age, the seemingly the age of the child was at least five, maybe six. And you're thinking at this point, you shouldn't have to be in this predicament where you're throwing shoes every which direction. Right. Or was the kid, was the kid neurotypical? Like, yeah. did they have autism? That's true. Right. Did they true. have, I mean, that's true. Right. I don't know. A so history these are, of trauma. Th- that's these what are, I think. These mm-hmm. are all the things that, that we you, think about. Uh, while I'm watching TikTok. Yes. That's what I'm thinking. This is why I don't watch the TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> I forget to get on it. I have it on my phone, but I forget to. And I'm like, it's probably a good thing. I'm two hours in and I, I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> I'm two hours in. Well, Dr. Call, thank you so much for joining us today. Like, it was really um, a great time to talk about attachment. It's like one of my very favorite things to talk about because it is so foundational in um, how kiddos come to see me and then how they interact with the world Mm -hmm. and then how parents interact with me and all this great stuff. So I I really appreciated having you on. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you so much for your support. We want you to tell all your friends about Raising Joy podcast. Please rate, review, and please subscribe to, to the podcast. And listen next week to learn more about the impact that sleep has on mental health. And boy, am I ready for this one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So until next time, just breathe. Open up. You you matter. matter.